Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Delete. I absolutely love making this podcast and I'm so happy to bring you another episode. So today's guest is Nimco Ali. Nimco is the founder of Daughters of Eve, a non-profit organisation that works to advance and protect the physical, mental and sexual health rights of young people. At Daughters of Eve, they recognise that FGM is a form of gender-based violence. They believe that young people need to be supported in all areas of their life and they work with women and girls to give them specialist support. In 2014, Daughters of Eve received an award at the Red Magazine Woman of the Year Awards and they were placed number six in the Women's Hour Power List. We recorded this episode in quite a busy coffee shop in Notting Hill. It was the only place that me and Nimco could meet up and chat. So there is some background noise, but um, it's a really interesting chat. Nimco shares a lot about her life and her work and we chatted for well over an hour. So I've actually split these episodes into two parts. Nimco is also writing a book at the moment and there'll be a lot more about that coming out soon. So make sure you follow her and so you don't miss any announcements about the book. It's going to be amazing. So thanks again and I hope you enjoy this episode. Here it is. I'm happy to sit down and have a conversation if it means another person doesn't have to suffer the things that I had to suffer or another person doesn't have to be ignored or dismissed. And I'm also happy to kind of call people out on their bullshit. So I'm with Nimco Ali in a corner of a coffee shop. So a little bit about what you do. You are amazing. And I think that everything that you're doing for women, women's rights, social activism, like campaigning, oh my God, you're doing so much. And I look at you for help in the politics arena at the moment, because the internet is scary. Um, So where did it all start, your kind of, um, yeah, this desire to change the world? (laughs) To change the world? I think I've always wanted to live in a better place. In, in terms of wanting to really change the world and really wanted to be very active in it was when I was um, in my early in my, my early 20s in terms of the activism work that I'm doing now. But I've always come from a very political family, so mm-hmm. my grandfather was one of the pioneers of the independent state of Somaliland. So, ironically, uh, my FGM story starts also with having seen civil war at the same time. So I was on holiday in um, what, what is now Somaliland, and uh, my grandfather was arrested in the middle of the night, and then within a week we had to leave and flee over across to Djibouti. Sometimes I kind of feel like I've lived several lives in a weird way. So um, I remember just kind of just trying to find the sense of self because what happened was that my world was kind of like, you know, thrown apart. My family that I saw um, every other three months or four months was across the world and were now scattered everywhere. My grandfather, the love of my life, I thought was dead. Mm-hmm. I had just come back and had one of the most invasive forms of FGM. So I think as an, as, as an eight-year-old, I took a moment to think, like, you know, what am I going to do? And I had no idea. And it was at the age of 14 when I found Noah the Salawi and um, George Orwell. And I read the fact that each and every one of us has a role to play in the, in the lives of other people. That's what I consciously made the decisions to every day push a little bit forward and always challenge in injustices. And I've always been one of those kind of people that um, ask the question why. And if you can't, and if you can't come to me with um, a real answer, because I would say. Um, I don't need to agree with you, but I can respect your opinion. Yeah. So if you don't have a formulated and like you know stands on why you're doing something, then please believe that I'm going to keep questioning it because I just think it's quite ridiculous. Um, and the, and in my twenties and even my, my my teen years, I was very kind of aggressive in those kind of conversations. And like I can say I was a bit of an asshole. But um, in the last in, in the last few years, I've actually started to learn that if you listen to somebody as as, as they talk, they'll they'll kind of talk themselves out. Of 
of it. So you don't necessarily have to agree or challenge them, but just listen. So yeah, I think my, my politics has always been something that's been in my system through my grandparents and through my parents. And in terms of activism, I think um, realizing that as a 14-year-old, the FGM was a, a gender-based um, issue and it had nothing to do with me being Somali, Muslim, or even African, was the start of my feminism. And I had um, grown up in Cardiff where like, you know, every girl that I knew had FGM and FGM was just like a normal day-to-day -day kind of thing. But I also knew what happened to the girls that, that kind of spoke out. And I decided at a very early age that um, FGM was something that, I'm, that I was going to get over. So I'd always talked about FGM in the third person. I never associated it with, with myself. Mm -hmm. And that is a really interesting thing because, um, like I said, I read Noelle Adesalawi when she, um, when I was about 14, 13, and, she, and in her book she talks about her FGM. And she, and she talks about the struggle and the relationship with, with her mother. And I remember meeting her in 2014 and wanting to ask her that question about, like, you know, how did she reconcile with, with her mother? Because my mother and I were having a difficult time during that period. And in, like, in the interview that, that she was doing, um, she, she, she talked about how she'd written that essay that changed my life several times and threw it into the ocean because she was so ashamed. And I thought, you were a god, what were you ashamed of? And I, so I changed my question to not ask her about the, the relationship with Heather and her mother, but just to ask her, like, what was she ashamed of? And she said, um, I was ashamed of being defined as nothing but a mutilated vagina. And that was an impactful moment because that's what had that's what had stopped me for a long time because I didn't want to be an Imkawali, the FGM person. I thought, like, you know, I've got degrees, I've did this. So I was always, like, you know, never being defined by that. And I think that whole thing of shame and stigma and the fact that you should be embarrassed was something that I was very much gripped by. But because I lived in a parallel universe, I thought to myself, I didn't really need to associate with it. And in um, so um, I met Layla in 2009, first of all, where um, my sister had ripped out a page out of Look magazine. And um, because I was working on the policy document in, in Bristol about FGM, but I was not going to talk about myself as a survivor. And I didn't really talk about myself as a survivor until about 2012. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, so she ripped this page out and then she's like, you know, she said, look, there's a girl actually talking about FGM. And I reached out to Layla and I said to her, like, you know, I'd really love to meet you because my thing was that it, it, it takes a lot of strength and it takes a lot of like, you know, um, self-confidence in order to be speaking out. And this was something that I wasn't ready to do and something that I did want to do and I thought what, what is the point so yeah so um so um so Lila and I met and, and and then we had conversations and then and then I moved down to London in 2010 and I started to volunteer at this organization called Forward um, and I met one of the young women there who had had like you know the most invasive form like the same FGM that I had so type 3 and nobody really talked about it and the defibrillation or all these things and because mine I had it at 7 and, and, and at 11 I had the defibrillation so it was, I was reopened at 11 and I was able to live as much a normal life so FGM for me in terms of the physicality really ended in my, my um, just, just before I got to my teens um, so I remember meeting this girl and having conversations and still not telling her about my own experience and not even telling Layla like so Layla and I worked together because I thought I'm Nimco I'm the strong like this kind of thing person FGM is something that happened to me it's gone and um, this girl was doing an arts um, exhibition um, in a in a studio in East London and she was late and one of the people that was um, organising said oh well can you call her can you call her so she walked in and she went on that stage and she was literally hyperventilating breaking down and I thought fuck my silence if she doesn't know that there's, that there's another person in this room 
that has had the same form of FGM, that mm. like it's going to be okay. Mm. And it was in that moment I thought to myself, do you know what, you're a dickhead, man. It's not about you, it's about the fact that this girl just needs somebody else to mm. tell her that it's going to be okay. And it's not just words, but actually proving to her that yeah. it's going to be fine. And I remember because I, I was on a date. <laughs> I took a date as well with me and I didn't know he was standing behind me when I said, um, I said to her, I swear to God, don't worry, it's going to be okay. And she's like, how do you know? And I said, because I've been there, I've had it and it's going to be okay. And then we had this whole conversation about, it always goes back to her, I, like, you know, um, orgasms and intimacy and conversations and about self-love and, re and, 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 and reconnecting with yourself. For me, it was one of the key things is the fact that I'm a British citizen. Like, my vagina is British. Why does it have to have a separate legislation in order to protect me from something that's GBH? Why do you have to engage with so-called community leaders in order to have these conversations? Yeah. Did you have anyone around that time growing up at school, for example? Was anyone helpful? I think the most painful thing about my FGM wasn't the actual act of FGM, but it was the constant dismissal. It was my teachers, like, you know, saying, well, that's what happens to girls like you. Um, um, it was the doctor who took an 11-year-old girl who had a vagina sewn up and did it and then just never asked her how she was. So it was that whole idea of the fact that not existing within the system, which expected me. Yeah, that was all up to Manchester and Cardiff. So, so I was I was told that I was British and I should feel like I belong, but there was constantly statements or things being done to make me feel like I didn't belong. So. In 1993, um, like seven of my friends in Cardiff went, came to London to have FGM, two went to um, Dubai. And at that point, um, I remember there was a woman who um, I met recently as well. And she was a woman that was trying to say to like, you know, the police and everybody else that these girls are being taken to, like, you know, to be cut and that we should do things um, that, that, that we should try to support them. And I vividly remember being in um, an assembly in school where the local MP, and this is one of the things that I have a very uh, issue with certain political groups because they're more about votes and they are about actually my rights as, a, as, a, as an individual, um, saying that in, in targeting the Somali community, which, in, which is the largest community in Cardiff, in targeting the Somali community, then you're being racist. So there we were, we were being left to um, people that were benefiting from FGM and people that were so kind of gripped by the, by the pain themselves that they weren't, unable, they, they weren't able to do anything. And this is still the case in um, Cardiff. You know, I'm, I'm happy to speak out and say a lot of things because I know a lot of these young women can't do that. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, so again, it's that kind of backdrop. I came to London and to say, like, we actually need to do policy change. We need to be saying that these girls, like, you know, have your cultural identity. That's, there's like, you know, I love being Somali. I love being, I'm coming from a Muslim background, but um, I also want to be protected as a British citizen. And so that was the key thing in terms of around, um, around um, Lord Savi was to, um, build on the great work that Lady was doing with young people and, mm. and having those kind of psychological conversations but then also put some policy and um, strategic work behind that. What's the most kind of positive change that you've seen happen? I think the positive change has been the solidarity and the change of conversation because the first thing was to change FGM from a cultural act to um, fight violence against women and girls and what was really interesting in, in, in that was there was a lot of pushback from the traditional um, women's organisations to say well FGM is different. I'm like it's not 
actually different and it took a long time to have that conversation because a lot of those people were feeling um, uncomfortable that, that they spent years and years ignoring girls and seeing this as a cultural issue and not as a form of violence against women mm. and girls so that is the key thing and I, and I think and how we talk about FGM so not victimizing um, young women it's been a, it's been a thing that's been um, amazing because I like, like I said FGM is something that happened to me it doesn't define me mm. and it was this constant thing of the reason why I never spoke about why Noel talk, talks about being shamed it's, it's, it's this thing as though like you know that, that you wear your FGM as a symbol of who you are forever mm. as opposed to an act that, that you can actually stand and survive and talk about and this is something that happened to me but it's not something that's going to keep me down. You must have had so many people that you've affected have yeah. you like, you know that moment that you had when you were that turning point of like I don't feel ashamed have you had moments like that with with other women? It's do you know what I think um, they always say like you know one of the things that, that you look at as your greatest success points and everything else and it's and it's like two things that kind of stand out obviously um, about three weeks ago about about a month ago I took a picture of my um, niece who's five mm. and um, my um, little cousin who's eight and looking at those two and now I've got a new niece who's like name is so much like and I can't even pronounce I, I call her typo but um, <laughs> but it's this thing of actually looking at them as, as as women that have been like you know that have mothers and have grandmothers that are cut but that they will never be cut it's one of those things that I look at and my um, um, little cousin turned eight and so my so this is her ninth year on this planet my ninth year on this planet was spent as someone that had FGM so she's she so, so she's the first person in our family that's going to see a ninth year a tenth year a eleventh year um, God willing um, as, as an uncut girl and and that's something that really kind of makes me proud and really makes me happy but at the same time there was another and one of the things I always say that I'm very um, respectful to because in telling my story I'm implicitly telling a lot of other girls stories and FGM in the Somali community is, is at 98% so in me talking about FGM I don't necessarily want to give license to people to look at the Somali girls and say have you had FGM because that's not what it's about give them the time to come forward and have those conversations but um, I was on the um, Victoria line a few months ago and this girl um, came up to me and she said, oh, are you, um, are you Nimco, the FGM girl? And I thought, shit, is she going to have a go at me? Because that's what's happened for a long time. And she said, um, do you know what, thank you. Because for the first time, it's like people don't see FGM as this cultural thing that, you, that, 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 that we've kind of separated it as something that happens that we can kind of get over. And these, so the girls that I see that have had FGM have like skinny jeans, they roll up cigarettes, they're, 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 um, and they're in beanie hats, they live in Dalston, they live in um, like, you know, other parts of London. They're just normal girls and FGM is one of these like in a very global things. It's like it literally is on the streets of London on a day-to-day -day basis just like rape is and it's that whole thing of being being able to define yourself post the trauma and I do and I and, and, and I have a lot of conversations with um, Pav from my body back project around the idea of the fact that once you've been raped people assume that you don't have a sexual identity anymore mm -hmm. so it's like how can you enjoy sex after being raped I'm like fuck you it's like that's not what it's about it's, 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 it's about the fact that as a woman it's like you know the act of um, rape is a hate crime I think actually it's nothing to do with sex it's to do with power and hate of women so it's and then they always think like you know and the whole orgasm conversation about um, FGM is that oh well because you've had FGM you can't have an orgasm like well no that, that is that, that is such a misconception there's a lot of women that are being traumatized that can't have orgasms because the inability to create intimacy is the it's the kind of it's what's stopping you from having orgasm as opposed to the fact of this like you know and horrible thing that happened to you so yeah it's it's like I think those those kind of conversations are no longer being um, 
I don't, I don't no longer guard my words because for a long time I was always very conscious about what I was saying. I was very nervous about the fact that, okay, what have I said now that's going to get me into trouble? What have I said now? Because you are someone I find incredibly inspiring. You celebrate other women. What could possibly people have to disagree with you on? Like genuinely, I'm, I don't get it. I just see there's 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 two things there's a lot of these like young Somali girls and I'm not really I don't understand like the level of hate and I said that to one of them I saw the other day I said you, you don't even know me I don't even understand the level of hate and she said I haven't met Satan or Hitler but I hate them and I'm like you're actually comparing me to the devil and a mass murderer interesting but I, for me it's the, there's there's something that's within them mm. and being a um, I'm like you know a child of an immigrant and so. I and my generation were, were very lucky to, I say like, you know, I had um, a, di a direct contact to source where like, you know, where, where my parents were from and where I was born. But then I also had a really easy access to living in the West because the whole point is like I could identify myself as a black person, also British or whatever, be African. But for them, they're kind of like two generations removed. So this kind of like, you know, um, like, you know, cookie cut out, like, you know, cut, like African identity. Mm. It's like, I don't get it. Cause, because my thing is the fact that yes, be proud that you're African, but be proud that, that you're British. Celebrate the fact that you live in a country where there's free education, free healthcare, and celebrate in a country that you live in like, you know, yes, like, you know, 90% of the population might be white, but about 85% of those white people are actually amazing people. And I think that, that they find offensive. That's when I talk about feminism, obviously I see race on a day-to-day -day basis. I see, like you know, I'm not, like you know, as much as I'm um, affected by sexism, I get affected by um, racism, and that wasn't like you know, not any, like that, that was most apparent when I was in civil service. So to be in a senior position and to be a black African immigrant child, there were many assumptions of like you know how I got there or or, or, or who I was. But I always used to find that funny, and I thought, you know what, if I'm the only person in a room, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna like you know undo these misconceptions and in doing that I've become friends with a lot of people and we kind of hang out and everything else and I live on, on this premise to say that um, like you know I, like you know you might offend me but I don't take offense because if I took offense to everything then my life would quite actually just like stop mm -hmm. so that is that is that kind of um, those young girls I don't understand that one but the other thing about um, a lot of people, especially men or um, like senior community leaders or women that were kind of like um, also alongside those things, um, being being um, affected by what I was saying. So I would sit there and I would say, why are we engaging with um, this or that community um, about FGM? We need to be doing it from a strategic policy level. And they're like, no, but that you need to talk to us. I'm like, no, the child doesn't choose where they're born, but the child is born in this country. So a lot of people thought I was being disrespectful to them from a community kind of level. But my thing is the fact that I'm really not that interested in community and culture when it comes to violence against women and girls. It's about actually saying that this is like, you know, so we're not going to talk to a bunch of um, um, rapists about rape, and we're not going to talk to a bunch of uh, pedophiles about child abuse, and we're not going to talk to people that are actually perpetrating the crime of FGM about how we're going to handle it. That is just nonsensical. Mm. And I was very clear about those things, having seen it when I was growing up. So they thought I was being a bit disrespectful, and for me, I was about ending it. I wasn't about spending three years, like, you know, with funding up if you benefit from women being on their knees because they're in pain, then if they start standing up, then they start um, challenging you. So a lot of those men were very much um, upset about the fact that what are we going to do with all these like you know um, male like women that are going to stand up for their rights. So they were so so, um, so they were insecure and and masculinity sometimes in the wrong places can be very um, fragile. There's like 
really dark um, corners of Twitter, aren't there as well? I definitely think that willpower is important with like yeah. what you see and switching off and protecting your mental health and being around people who inspire you. But um, I feel like it's important to be aware of everything as well. And I don't want to shut out bad news. Like, I want to. I want to know what the, what is going on yeah. with the world. How do you manage that balance of um, being so clued up with what's going on? being so switched on with politics and with feminism and the world we live in but how do you maintain your you know a sense of not too much doom and gloom basically like you know the whole thing is like I say I do like a serious job I never take myself seriously and that's one of the key things is the fact that when you have to when you think of yourself as like the most like you know serious person and I was having this um, conversation with um, somebody about um, dating and things like that and I said like why um, I wouldn't date somebody then wanted to convert to Islam for me I'd be like because it's one of these things where you get people that jump into something that all of a sudden they're the master of everything else and the, the, the master of that whole kind of thing and I thought you know what this is the campaign that I've been doing so you come in three weeks in and you want to tell me how it's done it's like thanks very much it's like you know so I, I think like you know um, for self-preservation you have to be funny you have to not take things seriously but um, in terms of politics it's because I don't know you know what I want to see I, I, I believe in better people I, and it's one of those things where the fact that I believe that you could actually like you know that these people that are in power could really make change and mm-hmm. I think that we have a role to play in terms of like you know helping them see that mm-hmm. so I'm happy to sit down and have a conversation if it means that um, another person doesn't have to um, suffer the things that I have to suffer or another person doesn't, doesn't have to be ignored or dismissed and I'm, and I'm also happy to kind of call people out on their bullshit so mm-hmm. I remember like you know when I met um, Obama who was like sometimes like, you, you, you have to even tell Obama to get over himself the thing is I always say to people get over yourself and he used to sit there and the thing about FGM is people always wanted to like, you know, do this whole oh like let me save you or be so sad about it and he's and he's like like FGM is so horrible it's so this and he was talking about it and I said mate your father came out of an FGM vagina had your had your mother been Kenya she would have had FGM so you could have come out of a vagina so don't act like it's not something that is not in your lived experience now let's talk about how we're going to end it so you have to I think humility is a key thing and it's like you know with humility you can achieve everything but a lot of people just like sometimes they think they're going to come to something like FGM and they have to grandstand I'm like don't grandstand and also don't be patronizing just like if you want to really do Mm. something come in and say this is what I think I can help this is what I can do so yeah I always like think with with politicians it's one of the things that they always need is a reality check um, it's constantly those things so I don't I always say I'm completely different to the person that I am on Twitter when people meet me like they won't even know me on um, social media like oh my god you're so nice you're like so angry on Twitter I'm like I'm trying to be funny actually but I don't think you can read context in a tweet which but yeah it's just like I think you can't get away from politics because it's like you know it's very personal to me it's I'm, I'm always conscious of my privileges but I'm also conscious of the, like you know the, 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 um, the, the many layers of oppression mm-hmm. that I could face because of my gender my race my faith and all these things that because I've been able to navigate so well and be able to just stand and have these kind of conversations yeah. I've been able to kind of avoid that's exactly it like I feel like you have the conversations like you actually give like some so much information and like you really educate people but you don't do it in a I don't think you do it in an angry way at yeah. all everyone's should be angry actually but it's just hard to listen through anger and that's why I find like Twitter um, when people are just shouting yeah it's really hard and don't you think we're losing like the art of conversation sometimes with social media? Yeah, it, it all gets closed off. And and and, and we are. And I've, and I've just done this new weird thing where the fact that I was literally uh, I was always on my phone 
I was always on my phone, it was kind of like, you know, attached to me and everything else. And now it's one of these things that I want to sit down with friends and have conversations and actually have debates and have dinner parties and, and get yeah. back to that point where we can, like, you know, I don't like the term agree to disagree, but we both have valid points and let's just respect that. So those are the kind of things I really want to get to, but there are fundamental things which I don't like, you know, barter on wishes, like the fact that I'm pro-choice, I'm anti the death penalty, and I believe that women are, like, you know, men should be equal. Everything else, yeah. let, let's, let's, let's have a chat because, it, yeah. and that's, and that's the thing of when I like you know it's so this like you know on the political spectrum I'm not I'm not a lefty I'm not a right wing I'm not whatever I'm just like I'm very liberal in the sense that I'm actually open to a lot of things and open, open into having conversations and a lot of people can no longer deal with that because they want you to be like hard left or right I'm like no that's just like that is a constant state of anger and there's nothing there's yeah. there's nothing worse about aging if you don't necessarily grow and you don't mellow out and I remember as a kid everything was very black and white to me and I remember writing lots of essays and my history teacher being like one of the most amazing people that I'd met and kind of actually supported me through my um, high school but ultimately always very concerned about how I was like you know this is how it is and this is what I think and I used to have arguments on those things this is what I used to think but now it's like what are the things that are non-transferable um, so it's these kind of conversations and everything else it's like whatever yeah. and I take that into my um, kind of dating world now as well it's the fact that when I say I would ask people like what they think about um, like an you know, abortion and they should say that it's a woman's choice that's the only answer that a man can give yeah. it's really it's it's really hard to find people that are serious but don't take themselves seriously yes. and that's the need but Twitter is one of those things it's I don't um, do I do I ever want to be like you know do, have I ever like you know found something on Twitter that really enlightened me no unless it's some kind of an article that's being like you know um, retweeted or whatever it is do I think like you know um, I used I used to listen to like you know I don't listen to music so I used to listen to talk radio but even talk radio now it's gone to the point where it's just kind of like you know it's like, it's like baited for hits yeah I'm like can you just like if you're going to debate and have a conversation actually have a conversation there's certain people like I'd, I'd rather listen to and um, people that I don't agree with just to know where the end where they yeah. where, where, where the other side is because if I listen to the BBC it's like I agree with you but at the same time I'm just thinking what is the debate what is the conversation that we're having and there doesn't seem to be a conversation but I think yeah Twitter is I think Twitter was has been useful for um, like activism because what it's done it in terms of like one hashtag it's collectively brought the stories of millions of women to one place rather yeah. than, um, rather than saying how many women have been affected by FGM so you can kind of hashtag that whether it's like you know sexual assault all these things mm -hmm. and then um, or standing in the song. power and the numbers exactly but I think in and one of the things I'm really uncomfortable un about social media and other places is that how a number of like you know a lot of women I um, that I love who happen just to be white and liberal have been pushed back from social platforming mm -hmm. and to say and um, to say the things that they say in, in a funny kind of way and I think when we start shutting down debates in those kind of ways then we only hear one side of the story yeah. sometimes this happens with me but, and that's because I'm you know working in an industry that's extremely privileged you know I'll go on these panels and talk about um, the pay gap you know stuff about women in the workplace these issues are important but that's that's women in a workplace in London working in an office which is like that's not actually that relatable to a lot of people 
So I think, so this is another thing again, and this is like, you know, in your uncomfortability and articulating that, 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 that you've been made to feel that your struggle is not real. Mm. So my thing is the fact yeah. that it doesn't, matter, it. It's, it's, it doesn't matter whether, like, you know, your struggle, because the fact that you're, you're a woman is that you can't get a CEO job, or the fact that because you're a woman, you're being forced to be married at 12, or you can't get a divorce because, like, you know, your religion is an allowed Each and every woman has the right to their her pain and her struggle. And it's, and that, and that is my thing. I always say to people, like, you know, if it's the worst thing that's going to happen to you, or if the worst thing that's happening to you, then that's something that I care about. So I never, I never kind of separate between, because um, I remember when the normal paid street campaign was um, mm. kind of happening, and I, so I believe in collective um, feminism and the fact that we all do our bit and then we get to the goal, which is like the utopia of like you know egalitarian society. And I remember when the normal paid the normal paid street campaign was going on, and like you know it was like people were like, oh for God's sake, why don't you um, like do something about FGM? Like no, no, there are those of us that are doing the work around FGM, supporting the women that are doing the normal paid street, and the normal paid street women have got out back as much we've got the fact that after we end this like you know this shit we also want to get paid equal so somebody's going to do that but we're not all going to sit down and concentrate on one thing just because that's what you want us to do we're going to multitask as women and as feminists mm. and i think so that is that thing so i think if you're in terms of campaigning if the biggest thing to you is like you know sexual violence within your school or if it's um the, the, the fact that um, girls are not being, like, you know, encouraged as much as um, boys to go for STEM subjects. Like, you know, speak up because that is what's eating you and that's what's, like, you know, that, that's what's really um, affecting you. And if, it, and if it's affecting you, trust me, it's affecting other women around you. And you might just be the first person that's given the privilege and all, all, all the strength to have those kind of conversations. So I think I think that's one of the things that social media is kind of good for. It can kind of give you a collective community as much yeah. as it can give you a, um, access to trolls. There's no hierarchy of pain. And or struggles, and I think that's one of the things that when I talk about FGM and people will talk about the different types, I'm like, no, all forms of FGM, this needs to be en ended. I'm not going to talk about the hierarchy, and I think that's what's interesting with the whole um, the Chad Evans um, case mm. and the fact that good rape um, be bad rape. You're thinking, no, it's rape, it's those kind of things. And, but one of the things yeah. that I would always say as an activist as well, and it's um, it's it's the fact that I will I will um, I will never chastise or cri like you know criticize someone that I respect. For doing something wrong in public. It's one of the things is like, you know, I respect them and I'll stand with like, you know, this is my sister, but in private I will have a conversation. And I think that's I think that's also a lot of things that we're forgetting in terms of like, you know, the etiquette of this course. It's it's a fact that you can stand together and my mother always like, you know, she always used to say keep it classy. So that's like talking about vaginas. In terms of my disagreements, I will like, you know, in terms of somebody that I like thinking, I will always keep it classy. And for me, that was my kind of journey was the fact that nobody could undo my FGM but I just wanted like you know the state to apologize and say you know what shit we fucked up we we could have like you know talked more about FGM so 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 when you were going there you would have known what was going to happen when you came back we, we could have actually worked with you a little bit more all these other kind of things I wasn't expecting a miracle of FGM not to happen I was just expecting appeasement and an, 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 an apology and I think sometimes that's what you, you, you you've got to do you've got to apologize if you um, can have an online um, spot with somebody and you meet them in public, like you meet them in a room again, it's like be nice and just like, you know, just like acknowledge them and say hello because I think like, you know, kindness is the kind is one of the things that will really resonate yeah. with people. But that's, uh, yeah, I don't think it's like the Labour Party now, it's airing all its, you know, all its laundry in public, but the Conservatives keep it classy. You yeah. might not agree with them, but they'll skin you behind closed doors and clean it up before anybody else has ever found out. So that's the thing about politics is that you've got to be like that because who's who's going to 
trust you if you're screaming at people like you know you're like you know as a lunatic and they're like you're a bit of a um, I don't, and I can happily say that because when I was angry and I first started this work and people were trying to kill me and my family weren't speaking to me and I was all alone I was angry I was hurt and there, there were a few people that I was just kind of like do you know what like I was, I, I, I was extremely angry, and it has been a painful kind of journey. But at the same time, I've come, I've come over that now that I can actually tell somebody to fuck off, but in a way which I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna screw about it all day. Five years of trying to articulate and be nice and have these kind of conversations is, it's, it's been hard, and mm. it's like I just haven't got the time for it. And I do sometimes think that if I could like have certain conversations again, it would be very interesting. But I can do that with um, journalists now when they kind of um, ask me about FGM. I'm like, well, I had it, so it's like, and, I, and I'm over it. Let's talk about the fact that we need to be ending it. I feel an immense sense of responsibility and love for all the other young girls that look like me that are in this country and that, and like in, 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 in like in this city. The fact that um, polygamy is now quite massive within my age range, within young girls that I know, and my mother got divorced because my dad wanted a second wife, and she said no. It's just—it's really weird in the way which we kind of regress when we're scared of um, doing something, and then what you do is then you attack the people that are doing what you were scared to do. So that is my kind of like you know yeah. fake psychological analysis of this whole thing. So that, and that's one of the reasons why I always like people always say to me, oh, why do you always go back to Bristol? And I always like like mix with. Like, I'm very proud to be Somali, and I go back all the time because I want young kids to know that you can actually be 33 and not married, and have three degrees and work and work for no money, but still like survive. So there's these all these ideals. So it's that it's like that pig in Animal Farm. Like, you know, because he's, he, he, he was gone, all the rules had changed. Mm. So from equality to like, you know, all those things. I'm always constantly the one that goes back and says, hey, look, like, you, know, you guys are 21. You can actually just go travel the world, you can do whatever. Yeah. The mistakes that I made, or at least were made in private. And that is not a thing that with social media yeah. um, allows you to do at the moment. Thank you so much for tuning in every week to my podcast i really appreciate it um, if you have any feedback tweet me at emma gannon i'd love to hear what you think and also if you have two minutes i'd love you to leave a rating or a review on itunes it would that would be amazing thanks again and see you next week